0: Hi, I'm Alice Vo Edwards, and this is Compassionate Las Vegas, the podcast.
1: Welcome to Compassionate Las Vegas, the podcast, where we highlight the strength of our city, the spirit of our people, and share your stories of compassion welcome back to compassionate las vegas the podcast i'm your host will rucker and today's episode is tailor-made for all of my business and entrepreneurial friends out there this is the episode where we talk about making compassion make dollars and cents yeah i'm being a little cheesy but it is really important to recognize how compassionate actions and practices do impact the bottom line in a positive way today's guest is perfect for this topic none other than alice vote edwards is joining us on the podcast today now alice is a translational psychological scientist who is passionate about using social capital and technologies as levers to increase human thriving She is an expert in understanding and aligning employer and employee needs for the best win-win outcomes. So employees can be happy and productive and organizations can be more profitable. Alice has a passion for how technology can help improve outcomes for at-risk groups and individuals with disabilities. With an MBA and nearly 20 years of corporate experience, Alice is extremely knowledgeable about what makes businesses run. Currently, she is a PhD candidate in industrial organizational psychology with a focus on research and evaluation. Her dissertation topic is researching the relationships between social capital, personality, job satisfaction and turnover. Now, Alice is an all business. She also finds joy in gardening and creating a mini paradise of greenery right here in the Nevada desert. If you visit her at the right time of the year, you can enjoy homegrown fruits and veggies straight from the garden. I've had her pomegranates and they are delish. Today, we talk about everything from meditation to mermaiding. If you are a business owner, a leader, or an employee, this episode is for you. Today, Alice helps us to understand why and how compassion makes dollars and cents. So without further ado, let's get into it. Hi, Alice, and welcome to the podcast. I am looking forward to our conversation today. I think the conversation that you and I have in this space is going to be perhaps one of the most important conversations we have on the show Because we're dealing with the subject of compassion and does it make dollars and cents? So I'm kind of, of course, playing on the the sense part of it with C E N T S versus S E -E N S E. Yeah, I can spell in English. (laughs) And so your background and your just wealth of knowledge on this subject, I think, is gonna be immensely valuable for the audience and help to shape the future that we're going to wake up into after this whole COVID epidemic passes by. So my first question for you is perhaps the hardest one of the show, and it's simply this. It's a two-parter. Who are you, and how do you define compassion?
0: Well, I I guess that is hard to define. You know, often we uh, put ourselves in different boxes, and I, it's hard for me to put myself in any one box. So. Um, if I'm forced to, like you said, it, it can be hard. I would just say I'm a citizen of the world. I like to consider myself someone who thinks on a global perspective. Um, and that's the qu- first question. Remind me what the second question was again?
1: Yeah, just how do you personally define compassion or how do you describe it?
0: I would probably define compassion simply as um, having and acting upon a sense of empathy. Um. I think of empathy and compassion maybe though as being kind of synonymous. So um, to further define that, I might say to, to look at those um, who are dealing with something and even if it's different than something that you might personally be dealing with to be able to thoughtfully consider how that might be impacting them and to um, have, have that, that feeling from, you know, like the no man is an Island kind of poem and feel that you want to help them uh, in their situation, even though, you may not be in the same circumstances then. them.
1: Yeah, I think that's a great definition and way to, to describe it. And it's right in line with so many of our other guests and how they view that subject. Compassion is so broad and so huge that, I mean, there's no one right way to describe it, but one consistent theme is definitely that empathy piece. So uh, thank you for that. With our conversation today, I really want to frame this in a way for our business owners. You, of course, are the author of CEO Within, and you understand that business mind and the importance of the return on investment. Just kind of start us off by talking about why compassion is an important investment for businesses to make.
0: Sure, there's. I can actually probably think of multiple reasons why. Compassion is a good investment for businesses in different contexts. Um, to give you a little more on the background of my perspective on this, I'm a PhD candidate in industrial organizational psychology, which the long-term, but I think of it as the science behind what makes business work and thrive in the context of how people interact, right? Because no business, no matter how automated, is a business without humans, right? Even if it's a technology business, somebody still has to code it, right? Somebody still has to interact with it to buy the product or use the product. So there really still is no business that doesn't involve interacting with humans. And so compassion comes into play in multiple ways when you're talking about the benefits to a corporation. First of all, um, as you can see today in the COVID pandemic uh, response, companies where they demonstrate compassion to others in a way that is perceived as not being self-serving has a positive impact from a PR perspective on how the company is viewed and even potentially um, one might argue on the overall value or perceived value of the organization, right? So for example, uh, Facebook um, did that. They, they um, uh, did a, like they said, they were going to be doing multi million dollars in grants. I don't remember the specific number um, as another example um, while not displaying external compassion from an internal compassion perspective. Don't quote me on the specific company, but I'm thinking it was Disney or another of those kinds of like, You know, top 500 kind of um, CEOs and upper executive um, branches. Several of those um, organizational leaders at the top tier executive level have come forward and said that they are entirely cutting their salary for the year or cutting their salary in half for the year at the top level. And the reason behind that is so that they don't have to cut the salaries of the employees more at the front lines who are at a lower pay grade, because if you know, normally, uh, CEOs and th- those top executives, especially in those larger companies with thousands and thousands of employees, can make so many more times, right what the what the bottom level makes that it, they can really significantly affect their bottom line and help them get through this if those upper le- level people are willing to you know just not be the one who makes millions of dollars, you know for a period. Um, so that has been in the news for several companies recently, and is an example of them displaying compassion—not even just externally to their own company, but internally to their staff. And while that is good for the company, as I said, from an external perception, I also see a movement like that by, like, the CEO and the upper executives as something where I feel that the employees who work at that company and who still have jobs and who didn't, um, you know, and aren't going to have the same level of financial stress because their pay got cut. Um, in building brand loyalty, right? Because they know very well it's in the news that their CEO, you know, makes you know multiple millions of dollars, right? Um, upper CEOs, I haven't looked at some of the recent stats, but CEOs in 500, Fortune 500 companies can make hundred thousand dollars, hundred million and up kind of salaries, right? So if you're making fifteen dollars an hour, thirty dollars an hour, you know, and you're struggling, struggling to know whether or not you're still going to have a job, and you know, the CEO is just, you know rocking it in his mansion, you'd be a little frustrated, right?
1: And let's put that that number in context here. So a million is how many thousand?
0: So, so, so for example, let me just, uh, let's do, I think another way to do it. So as of 2020, okay, Bob Iger's annual pay is $47.5 million. Okay. So mm-hmm. how I would help people uh, maybe conceptualize that is say, you know, making $47,000, right, is maybe like a, a decent, you know, starting salary um, if you're coming out of college and trying to get into the working world and then you work your way up from there, at least here in Vegas, right? In San Francisco, you, you wouldn't be able to afford a studio, you know, on that. But here in right, Vegas, $47, you, could, you couldn't maybe support a family, but you could get by, right? Mm-hmm. Right?
1: Yeah, you you can get by on $47,000. A lot of people do.
0: My brother, come as a new graduate out of uh, an MBA. or sorry, a bachelor's program at UNLV. If he started at forty-seven thousand, he could get himself off the ground and work his way up from there. So that would be okay, right? Um, now, in context, right? To get to Bob Iger, CEO of D- Disney's salary, you take that, uh, you know, forty-seven million. And if he says, "Hey, I'll forego my salary," how many of his? employees, you know, frontline Disneyland worker kind of people in the 47-ish bracket, thousand a year, right? Can instead have his salary be applied to, right? So one guy compared to how many of his worker bees. So if we take his salary and then we divide it, I have mild dyslexia, so mental math, not my strong (laughs) point.
1: Well, I'm not great at mental math either, but it's it's kind of easy to see when, when you have a little versus a lot, right?
0: Oh, for sure. So if he cut his one salary, it's the equivalent of a thousand people's salary. And you know, you can still say a thousand employees' salaries because um, you know, like a frontline cook, you know, entry level might make half of that, right? Whereas somebody else might make the upper. So mm-hmm. you could just in general say that if one CEO like Bob Iger forgoes his salary for the year, he is saying, hey, I have compassion for my employees. And I know that they are struggling financially and don't have the level of resilience that I do. So I'm willing to say goodbye to my salary so that instead of me having, having my income the way I'm used to it, a thousand of my employees can have better job security.
1: So a thousand people can, can be on that one person's salary and live comfortably. Because 47,000, I know you say that's kind of an entry-level Range, but here in Vegas, $47,000 is really mid level. Like that's what managers are making $47,000, $50,000, something like that. You go to a casino, you've got $20,000. Their, their minimum wage, maybe $10, maybe fifteen dollars if they're lucky. So that's a big deal. And how does the CEO, of course, who's accustomed to a particular lifestyle, admittedly, I, I do have a VIP access card to one of the casino chains here in town and so I get to skip the line. I don't have mm-hmm. to wait for things, you know, if I need a Uber, taxi, I go to the front of the line. I don't have to make reservations. I just show up and I'm immediately seated at restaurants. It's really nice. It's mm-hmm. it's really nice. And I am not a millionaire by any stretch of the imagination. So how does the CEO see the whiffum? What's in it for me when it comes to making compassionate choices like that?
0: So um i don't know if you noticed but stocks have cra- crashed pretty poorly right in 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 response to covid right there was a lot of stock crashing happening oh, yeah. um though some companies have bounced back better than others but um, as a, a psychology major i i perceive the stock market not really as an actual you know metric measurement of the actual value of a company but mm-hmm. as a combination of their value Times some psychological factor of how it's perceived as an organization, right? So especially, right, knowing that Disneyland has been closed, right? So people are thinking, oh, you know, the company's not making money, you know, how are they going to make up for this shortfall? You know, employees are furloughed, how are they going to cover this, right? So stock market, Uh, you know, value stock is saying, boom, 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 boom. And they, people also know that these top level executives make so much money compared to their underlings. Right. So they, they see, you know, significantly less income coming in and yet that big paycheck, you know, um, now I believe believe that salary is a combination of his base plus his stock value. Okay. Mm -hmm. And that's another factor I'll mention in a minute, but let's just say his base was 10 million. Right. right? 10 million, if you divide that by month, he makes $83 million a month if he gets just 10 million as a base. Okay, $83, Sorry, $83,000 a month. So like mm-hmm. you were saying, if someone here in Vegas on the front line had a base salary of 20 or 40,000, he makes an equivalent of their annual salary on a monthly basis normally. That's a big check to write when the company's financially in this kind of severe panic mode, right? Right. Yeah. So when you can say, hey, You don't have to pay that check right now. It's okay, right? That's a big, oh, okay, that's a lot less money to pay. But additionally, like I said, most of CEOs at that level are also paid a significant portion of their salary in stock because the goal is to um, align the incentives of the CEO, not with just sitting there and making that big paycheck, but also with the company making money as a whole. And I would maybe contend that the stock value isn't necessarily the best uh, actual long-term measure for that. Because they get the stock value now, you're not making them have to wait to sell it in 10 years. And so I have right. a separate perspective of sometimes because it's overly incentivized on that end, some CEOs might make decisions that, that make the stock look good in the short term, while they plan to still be the CEO, rather than making a decision that actually is better for the company long term,
1: even though it might affect,
0: piece. right, the sustainability piece because they might be affecting, because they're, because their incentives are not aligned with a 10 or 20 year sustainability plan, right? Because their, 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 their personal incentive is, I want the stock to look good today. Because if I want money, I can go to the stock market and cash out today, right? But in this instance, it works out well because to, 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 if you want a compassionate leader and he's incentivized in a large part by stock options, right? Well, if the stock's crashing, anything he can do to improve the perception of the organization so that the stock value will rise essentially going directly into his pocket in a very big way right Right, yeah so his incentives are aligned with having the public and his employees perceive him as being a compassionate leader it also i think helps um so they actually found this in medical circles so i don't know if you know this but at for medical doctors okay um medical doctors um uh, lawsuits for malpractice are not actually based on like the statistical number of errors that a doctor makes, right? Okay. They've actually found in studies that doctors whose patients feel like they don't listen and don't really pay attention to them are more likely to sue. Wow. So if a doctor's a jerk essentially, right? And it's like, well, you didn't listen to me. So it's your fault that you screwed up, right? They're going to sue. But if the doctor made an honest mistake, the doctor's always been nice and he's your family friend and you give him bunk cakes at Christmas or whatever. Right. And he makes a mistake. He's your friend. You're like, well, he made a mistake, but you know what? You know, everybody makes mistakes. It's okay. So you're going to, you're going to be more willing to forgive a mistake if the doctor is nice. Right. But if the doctor's a jerk, you're not going to forgive the mistake. Right. And if you think about a company, the bigger you get, the harder they fall and the more likely somebody wants to sue you. Right. But I believe the same principle of, uh, jerkiness versus niceness and compassion applies, right? Uh, will some people always sue you like Disneyland's getting sued right now by somebody who said they rode frozen. They want to sue them for whatever stupid reason. Yes. People will always sue you, but the percentage of people who will sue you just because they're greedy, right? Versus the percentage of people who will sue you if they feel like you wronged them and are a jerk anyway and deserve it is much higher, right? Mm-hmm. So if you act compassionately and you are perceived as being a compassionate company, In some ways, that's kind of like a um, buffer against lawsuits, right? Because if you make a mistake, people will say, you know what, they made a mistake, but hey, in general, they try and do the right thing. So I'm going to forgive them this one time, you know?
1: So that's a very practical way that compassion helps to increase profitability. But let's let's bring it down a a bit too for maybe a, a company that has 150 employees. And they feel like, well, compassionate practices like paid time off, uh, flexible schedule, whatever it may be, that's too expensive to actually execute. It's nice to have happy employees, but what really matters is the bottom line. Speak to that person.
0: Cool. So we spoke a lot in, in this last little segment on the external benefit of the perception of people on compassion, but let's flip that internally to the how- having your employees perceive you as being a compassionate leader or a compassionate organizations in how you treat them, right. Can benefit you. So, uh, and, and one of the best ways to look at that um, would be turnover, right? So from a turnover perspective, you can quibble, and it might differ by, by industry. And obviously roles that require higher levels of training would be a, a higher, but on average uh, general HR practices might say that it costs about, um 150% of somebody's salary overall to do the recruiting and the retraining to to try and refill that position. Like you can lose that much. Um, and and there's different things that factor into that, right? Part of it is the, the 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 time to and the money spent on hiring. Part of the part of that is uh, like opportunity cost if you had someone in the role who wasn't good and then you had to get somebody else in the role with the downtime in between when they could have been you know working and you had a hole because you didn't have it filled. Um, but also aside from uh, you know, the turnover when someone doesn't perceive you as being passionate and then they leave, right? And that's something that could be, uh, you know, like while they're saying that there could be, um, you know, a lot of, uh, there already is a lot of unemployment after this. If you go, if you think about the workers who are your better workers, right? If you can't legally say, well, I'm going to give John because he's my best worker, um, you know, paid time off. But you know, Tim and Sally, I'm not, because they're not hard workers, right? Yeah, it
1: has to be equity.
0: It has to be everybody, right? Mm -hmm. So since you can't, you know, give this favorable treatment to the ones who you know are your hardest workers, you have to give it across the board. Um, Those harder worker ones who are the ones who you would want to really kind of nurture as much as possible, because you know, the return on them is so much better. uh, If they feel like you didn't treat them compassionately, they are the ones who would be more employable elsewhere also. Right. Yeah, so as true. soon as this comes back, you'll they'll be like, you didn't, you know, the loyalty, I think is something that companies under consider when they're considering their bottom line. Right. Because if a company of an employee is loyal to you, if they feel like you care about them. And then they want to care about you more. It's, we call it uh, organizational commitment. That's how we the term we use when we're talking about measuring it scientifically, right? So organizational commitment, commitment to the organization. When they have higher commitment to the organization, you see less theft, right? They they care less about taking home that ream of paper from the office or um, you know box of toilet paper. From the office supplies, right? Right now, I don't
1: know that toilet paper is kind of like gold. (laughs) Right
0: now, yeah, exactly. Right now, it might not be true, but you know what? Right now, if I was a compassionate boss, I would say, "Come by and pick up some toilet paper. It's okay. The office doesn't need it." That's what I'd do if I was a compassionate boss right now. But uh, in general, you know, uh, there's a lot of small office thefts like that, right? Um, But those types of office thefts also are in office time, right? So employees who feel like an organization isn't treating them equitably. Or fairly, um, they—it's like a self-policing thing, right? If you don't want to treat me equi- um, uh, equitably, then I'm not going to feel like I need to treat you equitably. So, for example, fine—you're not—you don't want to pay me when I come back to work. You know, I don't have to volunteer if I see something else wrong that normally I would have uh, stepped up and told you about because it's not really my job.
1: I think that's a huge point because even even before this issue, which, of course, we know things will be very different after COVID, but if a person felt as if they were undercompensated, then they would almost say, well, you don't value me. I'm, I'm here to collect a check, but, you know, I'll do the bare minimum to get by, whereas someone that felt that they were adequately or well compensated will, will step up and put in the extra work. Uh, to, to make things happen for the company
0: yeah i mean like just going back to the disney example especially if the ceo in, in maybe in the smaller companies the C- ceo can't say well i'm going to take a pay cut though really realistically employees should realize you know that ceo in that smaller company might not have actually been paying himself that big of a paycheck anyway but if he was and he has taken a cut he should speak up he or she should speak up about it because i think that like I said, it goes back to that loyalty building you know um because but but you know, if your if your boss says, "Hey, I'm I'm gonna do everything I can to make sure you're taken care of, you and your family are taken care of," because I know you take care of me and our business, so I need to take care of you. That's my job. That's a servant leader's job: is to take care of their people, so their people can take care of the business's goals and objectives. Right? That's the way. You know, like they say, like the corporate level is taught, is, is is normally. Um, pyramid style where like the, the, the big guys on top and all the little peons on the bottom, but like servant leadership is the other way where right. your job is to serve these people so that these people who face the clients can really be getting everything done, um, you know, on the front lines. So uh, it goes to that loyalty, Loyalty, like I said, loyalty is also tied to job productivity, right? So a lot, you can't supervise your employees 24 seven, you know, you, you have your own work to do. So. Let's say that, uh, you know, like you said, you were saying a, 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 a restaurant kind of worker, right? Well, a restaurant worker, I worked in a, a restaurant kind of job when I was a teenager. Um, as a restaurant worker, you can choose to just stand there and do nothing when there's not a client you know, in the room needing something done, right? Or you can be cleaning corners and cracks that hadn't been cleaned in a while, or reorganizing the stock room, Or doing inventory or doing all these other things that maybe you're not being specifically told you should do, but somebody should get around to doing and you could take that initiative if you so chose, right? And Mm -hmm. I'm that kind of employee who typically has done that kind of extra initiative thing, right? But if I had been doing that kind of extra initiative kind of thing before, right, and then my boss screwed me over, right, during COVID, right, post-COVID, I'd be like, gee, you screwed me over. If you're not here watching me and I've done my bare minimum, I'm just a waitress. I'm supposed to wait on people. There's no people here for me to wait on. My job is you know, done. While there's no, no, no people to wait on, I might feel perfectly justified in being on my phone looking for another job or working on my blog or whatever the hell else I wanted to do because yeah. I, I'm meeting the bare minimum job requirements that I'm supposed to do and you didn't go above and beyond what your requirements were for me, so why should I go out of my way for you if you've demonstrated to me now that you have no loyalty to me? So,
1: what about the worker that takes advantage of compassion? What type of impact does that have on a business?
0: See, I think there's there's a a, a a tricky thing, right? With when people con- are concerned about people taking advantage, um, I think sometimes some employers, um, the psychologically, trying to create a compassionate culture, without taking creating a culture where people think that compassion means that they can slack is a, is where people get confused. Right. And I think in the verbiage and the tone and the policies and procedures and how you enact it with your employees, um, it can be very difficult to try and understand what that looks like. Mm-hmm. So for example, um, one of my clients, um, I advised them, uh, did something that I would not feel uh, that I did not feel was recommended in that they made a unlimited, um, PTO policy—that's
1: becoming more popular now, too. Yeah,
0: I'm—I'm against it. I am against it. But the problem is, if those—that's a a type of policy that can be very easily, like you said, taken advantage of, especially when you don't offer it while at the same time having a very strong HR team and leadership team with very clear metric-based job requirements for what it means to do your job and do your job well for your compensation. Let's pause
1: there because I think that that one key insight can change the game. If you have particular exacting standards for your team members, then it doesn't matter if it takes them 10 minutes or 10 hours. If it gets done, it gets done, and it meets the objectives of the organization. So having those key metrics, I think, is a a good way to begin compassionate leadership.
0: Definitely, because I think one of the biggest problems in leader, um, uh, the relationship between managers and their employees, right, is when you feel as an employee like you you thought you were doing your job, you thought you were doing well, and then you go into that quarterly review or whatever and they slam you and it can be so disheartening because you're like, but I tried, you know? Like, I thought I did everything right and here, so many months in, now you're telling me I did everything wrong, right? Why didn't I know or why wasn't I given opportunities to correct or fix this that were clear to me, right? And some people, um, when you're trying to communicate with them, you think you're communicating and you're just just going by, right? right? Just passing in the wind. And that's why I like numbers, right? I like quantitative communication, not qualitative communication because qualitative, oh, yeah, that's okay. Actually, the word okay, the way my husband uses the word okay, means great, right? Because if we go right. to a restaurant and he actually says, that was Okay. It was fabulous. I mean, we have to be in like a five star, or maybe not five star, but four star restaurant before it gets okay, right? Mm -hmm. Like, like how he uses the term is not the same as the way I use the term. So sometimes we think we're communicating and we're not because how people are perceiving that word means something totally different. Just like you said a minute ago, right? If we say, "Hey, you know, I think forty thousand dollars is a is a good salary," right? To the CEO of Disney, would forty thousand dollars be a good salary?
1: Absolutely not,
0: right? So the perception of that as a, as a monetary thing means something totally different. So similarly, how we use words can be perceived differently. But if we, instead of saying, on a score of one to five, were they a great employee or a poor employee, right? If it's, just, if it's more like, if you're a waitress, right? We do customer surveys and they're supposed to fill out these cards, right? Um, and your job is to try and, you know, I would say, I would create, if I was me, I would work with the, the, com- the company or the client to help them create a plan that um, tries to help to make the customer or the, or the waitress, you know, get the, more of those filled in because you don't want them just to have one, right? Because if you have one, in general, people are more likely bother filling that stuff in when they're bad than when they're good, right? right so yeah. if you just get a couple now and then, and you're only judging based on that, and they're mostly negative, you're going to be you're going to be skewing things not in a realistic way, right? Because it uh, just feel the people's human nature people are more likely to complain than to just come up and be like gee that employee was so great right mm-hmm. so really if you're going to create a metric based on customer satisfaction kind of feedback you need to very strongly heavily weight the positive feedback because trying to get it out of clients is so hard usually right so that positive feedback should be worth a lot more than negative feedback in trying to weigh um the the impact of a, a a customer, a customer-facing employee, from my perspective. But um, anyway, like, but that goes to, to making some kind of metric is, is the point. So if you use some kind of metric-based system and it's clearly explained and it's the same for all employees, a you can clearly know how you're doing. And some people are more competitive, so they, you know, if, if they're able to like look at their own score against somebody else's and they, and they like being best, they can try and be the best. But even if they're not the kind of person who likes to be the best, they still know what the minimum bar is they need to hit to keep their job, right? right. You know what I mean? And if they're not meeting that minimum bar, right? And they know that yes, they have all the vacation time they want, and they're not meeting the minimum bar, and you don't fire them for not for not for taking on the PTO, you would fire them because they got a warning that they weren't meeting their minimum numerical bar, and after the second warning, they're gone, right? But if they know that and they know what the the numerical, the numerical bar is, and they contract themselves against it, and they want the job, they'll self-opt not to use the PTO. You know what I mean? So I think those two parts need to be balanced, but the problem comes when they're not balanced. That's when a lot of the taking advantage of programs comes into place.
1: So for that employee that does want to be the best, that doesn't ever take time off because there's always something they know they could be doing differently, better, more, whatever it may be, how do you as a compassionate leader give that person permission or encourage that person hey, you've got three years of vacation time stored up here. Can you please take a day off? How do you do that?
0: So I've seen that handled in different ways. Um, And I wouldn't say there's any one size fits all. It also depends on the industry. For example, some industries are more prone to to burnout. And so in those industries, I would probably suggest requiring a minimum um, forced amount of time off just for mental health right? So if you were a medical doctor and you had not taken any of your time off in two or three years, I'd be like, dude, even if you just take the week off and go to like a CE thing, you have to not be in ER working on dying people for a week. You know what I mean? So I uh, I haven't uh, looked at any any hospital um, records, but I would, I would think that there probably is, you know, some kind of general policy that's in alignment with that. Um, but in other areas, um, for example, one thing I've seen um, in um, the Water and Power Union in in seeing how it's worked with my family members is what they do for those hardworking employees, right, who like to work a lot, is they create a uh, structure where you can take extra time worked as either vacation time or extra pay. Oh. So they work that into their union to make it you know, legal and all that. So they can choose if they want the extra time or the extra money. And I like that kind of idea, however it works out for an individual organization, of having, of and actually I think this is part of being compassionate, right? If you're a, um, a family person and you need the money, so you need to be working, and family vacations, because now you're talking about more people that you have to pay to send somewhere, right? You don't take that many of them. Maybe you want to work more, right? Because you need that money more at home, right? But maybe um, someone else likes taking more vacations and has more financial flexibility and they want the extra vacation, right? So if if you have one system and you're trying to to shove everybody into one system and say that this one system has to work for everybody, how is that actually compassionate, right? Because you're not uh, accounting for variances between people's individual needs right Mm -hmm. so then you have like you said some people who have all this vacation time stored up and you're not even giving them the option of getting it at cash cash if it was me at minimum i would say hey if you have a vacation time policy you would say once you reach uh you know three weeks you can only you're supposed to carry let's say two weeks forward right because i I just can't have you take a month off because it's no business continuity or whatever right so you can only carry two weeks um at a time right once you get to two weeks you you know you have to either uh, go back and use half a week or something, you know what I mean? Uh, however the company was going to do the policy, or we're just going to pay you a check for that amount to get you back down below the maximum allowable vacation threshold or something like If I would do something like that um, at a minimum kind of entry-level place to how to um, address those two things. But I really felt that the way that my um, father's company that he worked at did it, where on any time you were asked to do the overtime, on a you know this week you could be hey i want to use the uh i want it as pto thank you next week nope i need a cash right now give it to me as cash right like they could choose um on a, like a per you know instance of doing the vacation basis now they're a bigger company you know so like you said smaller companies have less uh structure and ability to manage more complex structures but 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 as i said in the first example there's still ways to build it in um, and also, I think that more companies should think about how to um, align income across all levels to organizational performance, no, not just like executive levels. You know, what okay. I mean, I've worked in companies where they did do bonuses uh, to all employees, not just okay. to top level employees, which is like a simple, you know, annual way to kind of do that alignment. Um, personally, the more you can do it frequently, the better I think it is because it goes back to like, you know, the Pavlov's dogs experience, right. Or where it's, where um, psychologically, the closer the reward is to the event that caused the reward, the more likely you are to realize, oh, I should do more of this because I'm rewarded for it. Right. So an annual reward does not do that well, but it's better than nothing. If you're a small company and you only have so much, you know, time to try and manage things, you know,
1: but even a certificate, you know, a thank you note, a call, a Pat on the back, I mean, those little simple things do have a measurable effect. If you don't do them, people notice. and of course, we know everyone is different as far as their love language, even at work. Yep. But mm-hmm. making sure that you are are acknowledging when someone does a good job can be a bonus in a sense.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, and you know you should um, explain to people what you mean by the love languages, but I think the the concept of the love languages ties with what we're saying in terms of when you're trying to be compassionate. You can't be compassionate in just one language because anybody who's one of the other four languages may not be actually receiving the passion you're trying to give if you're only giving it in the one flavor but just maybe quickly um summarize the, the five love languages
1: yeah absolutely and that's a great point so for the listening and viewing audience that may not be familiar there's a excellent kind of framework for loving people in different ways and i believe the author's name is gary chapman we'll put it in the notes there uh, to confirm, but he identifies five different ways in which people feel or experience love. One is an act of service, so literally doing something for someone else. Another way is words of affirmation, so saying, hey, you did a good job. Another language would be giving a gift, so that bonus, that time off, that's a way to express love. Quality time may be another way, which I, let's talk about how that would work in a workplace, but giving someone that undevoted, that attention, that direct time with someone else. And there's a fifth one that's not coming to mind, Alice. Do you know what the fifth one I'm missing is?
0: Um, so let's see. Is it touch? Uh, I think it's physical, a physical touch. touch. Physical which
1: touch, right? we have right? to be careful in the workplace. Yes,
0: <laughs> but, but maybe it would be like the hand on the shoulder, or if it was a hugging approved environment, you know, it could be a hug. Um, but even like a hand, a, a hand on a shoulder or when, when you're talking to someone they're having a rough day that, you know, that's really rough. I'm sorry you're going through that where you just, you know, hold and squeeze their hand gently um, can be that. But but like I said, to be compassionate, for me, compassion starts with following the platinum rule. Are you familiar with the platinum rule?
1: Let's talk about it because we talk about the golden rule.
0: Right. So the golden rule is do unto others as you would have done unto them. But we just said that there's five love languages, right? So if my love language is physical touch and verbal affirmation, and you're following the golden rule and yours is um, time, maybe you spend time with me, but you don't touch me or um, say anything nice. So am I going to feel the love you're trying to give? No, right? So the golden rule in this case would have been a fail, right? Mm -hmm. So the platinum rule says do unto others as they would have done to them. Yeah. Right? So – it pulls in that empathy part of, hey, if I really want to do well by people, I can't do do for them what I think they would want or need. I need to know what it is they want. I use this on the technology side with my technology clients on saying, hey, if you're going to develop a product, you need to know what the, what the, users, the intended users need or want. Right. You can't imagine you know for them how it's going to work because otherwise your UI is going to fall flat on its face, right? Because they're not going to use it the way that you want them to use it and get the benefit that you want out of it. So similarly... In a corporate context, your employees, in some senses, are a user group that you need to please because if you don't please them, they're going to quit or do a bad job for you and you're not going to make the money as the CEO, right? So, being a compassionate leader and knowing the five level language styles and how you can apply that in a corporate context. And I'm going to Platt Price. He hasn't done a book about that because he has done like the one for teens and the one for couples, you know, all these other ones. He should totally do one on. In the workplace, that would be like a really good next one for how you can use that. How
1: about you and I do one on the love languages of the workplace? We
0: could, but I, but I don't know. We'd have to see how you know. We, we can definitely talk about. You're it supposed sure. to
1: say absolutely yes. Let's do this
0: now. I want to, but I don't want him to get mad at me for like you know stepping on his uh you know his term or whatever. I don't know if it's like trademark <laughs> well, or whatever. But...
1: We clearly couldn't call it five love languages, but exactly we'll talk yeah. about it offline. Yeah, we'll, we'll make it no, happen
0: for sure, for sure. But um or five compassionate styles, right. Of, um, of conveying, caring to your employees is maybe the, the way, the way that you would express it because love and work might get a little bit weird to people. Right. So, um, cause not everyone, you know, like there's like the agape love versus the brotherly love. Not everyone understands, um, the, you know, those different styles of love when you're using the word love. So right. caring for employees in a compassionate way, the five styles could be, you know, however you want to talk about that, but yeah. So, in the, in the workplace context right now, if you were a smaller employer and you were like, gee, I don't have money to give, right? And, you know, uh, but I still want my employees to know that I care. How could I do that, right? You know, there are still ways you could through each of the five love languages, right? Definitely. Right? So like we said, the five love languages, uh, touch, gifts, time calls it treasure. Like the money one. And mm-hmm. affirmation, right? Yes. So on the on the t- treasure one, that is giving them all the paid time, whatever that they need and not hassling them about it. Right. So you know that's that, right? Um, and if you don't feel like you have money, like like we just talked about jokingly, right? If you don't have money, what other treasure could you physically give them that would show them that you want to help them, you just you know, you didn't get the PPO or the PPP uh, funding grant because McDonald's did or something. So you don't have the cash, but you still care. You could, like I said, open up the stores of the toilet paper. Right. And if you wanted to combine it with time, you could personally deliver as a CEO, a six pack of toilet paper, you know, from the office supplies to each of your employees houses. Right. How, how would, how would your employees feel? Like, like if tomorrow, you know, you got a door, a ring at the doorbell and you're like, who's that at my door? Right. And um, you, so maybe you don't even answer right? Because you're like, I'm not expecting anybody. We're supposed to be social distancing. Right. But then if you got a text from your boss, Hey, FYI, um, you know, I know we're cashed out with the company right now and we're all social distancing, but, um, you know, we have all these office supplies. So I'm just doing a little drop by gift care package for everybody, you know, um, pick it up when you can, it's outside. How flabbergasted and floored and cared for would you feel?
1: Yeah, that would be amazing.
0: Right. So that's an example of kind of combining, uh, gift. Time and treasure, kind of all in one, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So it could apply to any three of those, which is good, right? Because if you don't know which love language they are, you kind of covered three all in one, right? You can't really do a touch right now. You can't really do a touch right now because it's we're physical distancing. But you know, if you did a care package like that, and you like included a little letter that said, you know what, you know, my, you're my staff, and my staff are my are my my treasure. You know, like you're what makes this company work. You know, thank you for hanging in there with me. You know, and you put that with that package you'd be doing everything but touch all in one. And if you're just using supplies, you already have the office. All you're costing yourself is a little bit of your own time and driving around town. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah. And it still can kind of impact that touch because the, the acknowledgement that you're there physically, like that, still kind of works.
0: It's something that they received physically. It it is. Yeah. So because you physically drove. Yeah, I I see you're right. Yeah. So, so, so some, because especially some people know you can't be physically touchy right now anyway. And maybe like I said, in, in the physical context with works a little bit differently. Yeah. The fact that you bothered to drive over that you didn't just mail it right. right. Would mean a lot in terms of you, the touching aspect and it is something that they physically can hold. Um, so maybe the physical and the gifting kind of goes together like that, but yeah. So that's just an example, right. That we just came up with here on the show without even really thinking too hard. That would cover all five of those that would show compassion and build loyalty Within your employees and make them feel cared for and help address issues of stress because people are stressing out over toilet paper and all that, um, uh, while costing the company almost nothing, right? Right. So it isn't just about oh well I'm broke and poor you know whatever it's it's, like I said it goes back to just wanting to care and knowing what what matters to them and then just being open minded right like you don't have to think that there's just one way you can do it you you can think um, I in, in my coaching practice, I apply what's called appreciative inquiry and try to help with out of the box thinking, you know, so it's just like out of the box thinking, what would be something that people have valued? And how can I build on knowing what someone's valued in the past to create more meaningful experiences in the future?
1: Yeah. So we will have to do this again, because there's so much more that we could dive into. But before we end the show today, tell people how they can connect with you. Are you on social media? Do you have a website? What's the best way to, to get connected?
0: I am on social media, but I warn you, I'm not a frequent follower or, or, or connector on there, but I am on LinkedIn and uh, Facebook. Uh, Facebook, it's Alice Vo. LinkedIn, I think it's just Alice Vo Edwards. And then I have a personal site, AliceVoeEdwards.com, which is the best way to kind of use as a gateway to get to any of my other sites for my different um, books and or um, consulting practice uh, organizations since I'm involved in several different ventures. So um, that's a great starting place. And it's just Perfect. Alice Vo Edward, which is A-L-I-C-E, B-like Victor O, E D W A-R-D-S.com.
1: Awesome. And we'll make sure that that's linked in the description as well. We always want to make sure we give our listening audience something practical that they can implement starting today. Of course, we do have CEOs that are listening, but we also have frontline workers and those that are looking for work right now as well. Uh, or recently laid off, or maybe they've been laid off a while at this point because we're about six weeks in or or so to the the shutdown here. What practical ways can employers and employees act in compassion in this moment right now? Maybe a, a practice they can begin starting today?
0: I would recommend that if nothing else, if they're still you know virtually interacting with employees, um, that they take a moment, to try and spend a little more time talking about how it's impacting the, customer, the employee and and being personal i know with me i struggle with being very work oriented you know so it'd be very easy for me to start work and not say anything like hey how's your day you know how are things going are you adjusted well to being at home what's it like with the kids underfoot do you have enough toilet paper you know whatever um, it's i it's very easy for me to be just so work oriented that i skip any of those pleasantries which inadvertently can sometimes make me seem colder or less like I care. And it's not that I don't care, but it's just that I'm busy thinking down this one track. And if you don't bring up the other stuff, I don't think about it on my own. But in in practicing compassion, finding a time to pause and to think about that or to open conversations with coworkers or employees in asking how they're doing and if there's anything that you could be doing to try and help them, um, I think would be a good step And that implies even for employees in how they talk to their peers or how they talk to their loved ones, even at home on how they can do it better. You know, like an employee could talk to their kids and be like, hey, how can we be compassionate to each other? I'm trying to work here from home or I'm stressing about my job and you're yelling in the background or whatever. How can we be compassionate to each other and help each other better cope with, you know, our new reality? You know, Um, for me, I'm like, kids, come on, I'm trying to be on the phone, right? So I send them into the backyard. Thankfully we have a backyard they can go to and I can make it very comfortable for them. So then they're not suffering, but then we can both be compassionate to each other while they still have freedom to be them and I still have freedom to be me.
1: I think that's very good. And that that does cover the entire spectrum. So great compassionate practice to employ. In one or two words, a sentence or two, how are you embodying compassion in Las Vegas today?
0: Well, I would say probably through my volunteering with um, Nevada Coalition for Suicide Prevention um, as a trainer for Safe Talk classes. Um, The only caveat on that is since Safe Talk is required to be an in-person class, I can't actually do it right this minute because they want it to be in person. (laughs) Um, But I am in the process of getting trained for some online methods so that I can still provide alternative training. But it's not Nevada Coalition of Suicide Prevention approved because they only like in-person methods. But perhaps they may need to learn to adapt after this, so.
1: But that's huge. And I, I don't have time to, to go into that piece of it today, but that suicide prevention, I think this time that we're in where people are so isolated, they, they need to know that there's hope, that there's light. And we as the general population need to know the signs and what to do in that situation. So are there some resources you can recommend for us to learn during this time?
0: Well, I think the best single resource that I would recommend is that people save to their phone book, the crisis hotline, which is that you can text, which is 741-741. And if you're upset about anything, or if you're concerned about anyone else in any way, shape or form, you can just start a text. You just text 741-741 and talk to them about what's going on. I've used this um, for my own, uh, you know, crisis support things. And also, it doesn't have to be about you. It can be about if you're concerned about someone else and you're not sure how, what to do. Um, in one instance, I had, um, had an, inter- an, an, an intervention that I was doing with somebody else, but I was still stressing about it because I felt like maybe I hadn't done enough or that maybe I'd overlooked something else that I should have done that I hadn't thought about. And so it was still kind of in my head. And so I was even able to text them about that. Um, and they were able to help me feel, you know, good that I checked all the right box and did all the right stuff. But, um, I think a lot of people are, are scared about texting a, a weird number, but you know, that's why I'm, I always say, don't wait until you're in crisis to try it. Just try texting them now just to say, you know, I'm just feeling stir crazy about COVID and just see how they respond just so you can start build, building that comfort level to see how well trained they are. Because I'm telling you, I'm extremely... Um, impressed every time I interact with that crisis text hotline that we have here in the. US 741741 that um, and how well via text they convey um, personal affirmation of you know what you're dealing with emotionally and provide helpful support while still asking the, the, the good questions about safety and things. So they're really very impressive and for people who are traveling internationally but still have text access like I do when I'm traveling with T-Mobile, you can still get crisis support when you're in an international location for free, if you have that free texting. So it's pretty sweet. That's my number one go-to.
1: Awesome. 741-741.
0: Yep. Thank you so
1: much for being on the show today, Alice. This was amazing and we definitely have to have you back. Okay.
0: Sounds good. Thanks for having me.
1: We'll leave it there. This has been Compassionate Las Vegas, the podcast. Thank you for listening. This episode was made possible by the Jameson Foundation in partnership with the Moonridge Group. There are so many amazing things happening and so many people have inspirational stories to share. So if you are one of those people, this is your platform. Email me at will at winningwithwill.com. Use the subject line, Compassionate Las Vegas, and let me know your story. I'd love to have you on the show or to feature your story in a future episode. Be sure to subscribe, and if you haven't already, leave a five-star review. Your review and rating helps others to find this podcast and helps to further the mission to make Las Vegas a more compassionate place to live, work, and play. I also want you to share your practices for compassion Today, Alice shared the importance of listening to employees, to others in general, taking a beat to hear their concerns, to pay attention to how they are really doing on a personal level. We want to share your wisdom too, so we would love for you to include your compassionate practice tip with your five-star review. Love and compassion aren't luxuries, they are necessities. Live the golden rule and treat others the way you would want to be treated together we can make a difference together we will make the world a more compassionate place know that you are not just a drop in the ocean you are the entire ocean in a drop be well my friends and we will meet again on the next episode of compassionate las vegas
0: the podcast